0: Group of persons or a person gets it. It's usually because they've they're modeling somebody else. They've learned from somebody else. If I get how to how to play guitar, it's because somebody's taught me. Uh, when we learn to talk, it's because we're modeling. We're copying our parents' model. That's where we learn to get it from. Now, the Apostle Paul didn't have kids that we know about. Uh, we don't even know that he was married or anything. But he was a teacher, and he did experience the pride of teaching somebody something when they get it. The Thessalonians were a church that got it. They were a totally different story from these churches that were frustrating Paul. So Paul continues, writing in verses 2 and 3. We give thanks... To God, always, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see here is exactly what Paul is so excited about, what he's so elated about it. And this is where we know that he's telling them, you guys get it. You're a church that gets it. He says that he and his companions are constantly thankful for the church at Thessalonica, mentioning them in their prayers. Why? Because they're a healthy church. Because they get it. So what does a healthy church look like? Well, he tells us here in verse 3, first of all, that he's excited about their work of faith. Uh, the NIV the, well, on the back of your bulletin says, your work produced by faith. So what's that? What, what does that mean? Now, let's also not miss the fact that Paul doesn't give us a a huge list of things they were doing. He doesn't tell us that they were doing this outreach or that outreach or that they were having this event or that event. In fact, we don't know a whole lot about what they were doing, specifically. But one work that Paul does tell us that they did, here in verse 9, he tells us, they tell us how you turned to God from idols. That is a work of faith, so before we go any further, let's talk about this. What what are what are idols? First of all, because when we think about idols, we think about you know maybe a, a little piece of wood that we've carved a face into or carved some kind of uh, design into, and then you know they they bow down and worship it. But that's not all that it is. Sure, it can be that, but the definition is actually a lot broader than that because the Jews were people that he was writing to. But the Jews didn't bow down before idols. They didn't have a figure, a, you know, a, a tangible figure that they bowed down in front of and worshipped. The Gentiles may have. The Jews most likely didn't. The Jews worshipped the law. An idol is anything that separates us from God. It's anything that we put before God. Anything that is a higher priority for us then God is our idol. It can be money. That's a big one. It can be our car. It can be our job. It can be our family. Anything that is of more importance to us than God would be considered an idol. Now, the Bible speaks very clearly to the fact that if there's been a legitimate change inside of us, there will also be a change outside of us. So a healthy church, a good church, is filled with people who have legitimately put their trust for salvation in Jesus. And not only have they done that, but they're doing something about it. It's not only an internal thing, it's something that's showing in their lives. So one thing that we have to do if we're going to be a healthy church is to follow the example set by the Christ followers in Thessalonica and turn from our idols. What does that mean? It's going to mean different things to everybody. Each person has their own idols that you need to turn from, that I need to turn from. Anything that is more important to me than God, I need to get away from it and reprioritize. So what will your work of faith be? It's going to be different for each person, but I'll just give you some pointers. First of all, Seek first the kingdom of God. Because if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, those idols aren't going to seem important to you. Secondly, live with an eternal perspective. If you're living for here and now, it's easy to get caught up in it. But if you're living with an eternal perspective, realizing that the choices we make might have eternal ramifications, it's going to change the way that we act. Third, ask yourself, if you really believe that Jesus wants you to be his hands and feet, if you really believe that God wants you to be salt and light in this world, would you do something differently if you really believe that? Let's move on. The second piece of evidence that Paul gives us that that this is a church that gets it is their labor of love. The the version on the back of of your bulletin says, Your Labor Prompted by love, but it's a labor of love. Now the word labor is is really interesting. What it means is a beating. That's what it refers to. It's a beating. Uh, And it came to refer to the weariness that a soldier would feel after taking a beating. Uh, And and so it came to have a kind of broader understanding. uh, But Jesus used this word when, uh, when the woman was pouring... The rich perfume over him, and the disciples got really irritated that they would spend something so expensive on Jesus. And he says, "Why do you bother her?" And that word "bother" is the same word that Paul's using—the same Greek word that Paul's using as "labor" here. And I suppose that uh, getting a beating would be kind of bothersome, uh, but you get the point. That's that's what he's saying. This is a labor of love is something that is exhausting. It's wearisome. So with all that in mind, the term labor of love seems kind of like an oxymoron, doesn't it? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But that's, that's what love is. Love is a lot more than just a temporary fleeting emotion. Love is more than uh, feeling tingly or feeling happy or feeling, you know, like this is a great moment. Love is a lot more than that. Love is a commitment to putting someone or something before ourselves. It means that we're no longer living for the sake of satisfying ourselves, but we're living for the sake or doing something for the sake of others. For example, for those of you who are parents, how many of you grew up thinking, I can't wait to change messy diapers? (laughs) How many of you grew up thinking... It's going to be so great to change diapers for you know, three years or however long. Overflowing diapers, man, I'm all about that. That's what I'm looking forward to. No, none of us are thinking, man, I can't wait to change messy diapers. So why do we do it? It's because we love. It's because we love our children. And so we're willing to do something because of our love. We're willing to experience discomfort or disgust or... Uh, maybe dry heaving, uh, because because we love. So loving means doing what Jesus told us to do. When he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't just give one, he gave two. He said the first commandment, the greatest commandment, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. It's like it, to love your neighbor just as much as as you love yourself. And let's not miss who he was talking to there. He was talking to some people who were really in love with themselves. He's saying, you have to love others the way that you love yourself. Loving him, loving God with everything we've got is going to cause us to love others. Because if we're living for God's sake, because we love God, if we're living for his purposes, His purpose is to reach people and to love people. And so he says the first command is like the second command. Why? Because you can't have one without the other. You can't love God and hate people. You will love people if you truly love God. The Thessalonians realized that love for God will cause us to live for God. And so the world around them, the world around the church in Thessalonica noticed the difference. Now, we don't have the exact details again about what they were doing, but he does tell us again in verse 9, they turned from God to idols to serve. To serve the living and true God. You see the parallels here between verse 3 and verse 9? He's given us some insight to what this labor of love is. They're serving And he continues in verses 4 and 5, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So the reason that Paul knows that these people, these Thessalonian Christians, belong to God is because they're serving him. Actions speak louder than words. How can I say I love my wife if I'm doing something that shows that I don't love my wife. What's she going to believe? Is she going to believe my words or my actions? I guarantee you. It's the same with any relationship. Our actions speak louder than our words. You see, it's possible for somebody to hear the gospel and to maybe give intellectual assent to it for it to come in word only. He says it didn't come to you in word only. So it's possible to come in word only, where we give intellectual assent to it and yet do nothing about it. See, no transformation at all. See, the Bible, the gospel, isn't just about information. It's about transformation. So two questions. Would somebody know that you belong to God based on the way you are living your life right now. If they were a fly on the wall and followed you around, would they know that you belong to God? Has the gospel come to you in word only? Have you maybe just given intellectual assent to it, but you haven't seen it transform your life? Number two, what would it mean for you to serve? What would it look like for you to serve? Well, it would be different for each person. Peter gives us some insight in first Peter Chapter 4, verse 10, he writes, as each has received a gift, he's talking about spiritual gifts here, as each believer has received a spiritual gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So how you serve others is going to depend on how you're gifted. Paul often likens the church to a body. And a body has to take care of itself. You know, I've got an itch on my shoulder, so my hand takes care of it. I want to eat, so my hand brings the food to my mouth. And that's kind of a picture of what the church is supposed to look like, too. Serve one another. Finally, the the third uh, clue that Paul gives us, that this is a church that gets it, is their steadfastness of hope, or as uh, as we have in our bulletin, endurance inspired by hope. See, one thing that we can't overlook here is that the Thessalonians were under intense persecution. It wasn't a small deal. It wasn't like no big deal for them to believe the gospel. It was sacrificial. It's like that in parts of the world today where if you believe in Jesus, your life could end tomorrow just because of your faith in Jesus. The persecution in Thessalonica was intense. That's why Paul left. Uh, That's why Jason and his associates got dragged before the council and thrown in jail. See, the Holy Spirit's telling us through Paul's pen that they nevertheless endured in holding on to the hope. They had steadfastness of hope, even when life wasn't easy, even when they were faced with life-changing decisions or maybe life-ending decisions. They held on to their hope now what 's hope anyway let 's just clarify that word. What is hope? I mean when we talk about the word hope, uh, it often indicates uncertainty, kind of like uh, you know a wishing well like I, I walk up to a, a, a fountain and I throw a nickel in and I say, "Oh, I would love to have a new car or." Oh, I'd love to have a new job, but there's uncertainty. It's, it's more like a wishing type of thing. That's one way that we use that word in our culture. And I want to clarify because uh, that's not what Paul's saying. I mean, I hope that tomorrow when I, when I fly out of here, I don't get patted down by the TSA. <laughs> I really hope that, but I don't know. I'm uncertain. It could happen. It might not happen. There's uncertainty. There's uncertainty. That's not what Paul's saying that they're holding on to. See, when it's found in the Bible, two ways that we can interpret the word hope. First of all, it can refer to our purpose in life. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul wrote, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. If you substitute that word purpose for hope there. And of course, the book of Ephesians is written all about purpose that's not long after that, is where Paul writes, we are his workmanship created for good works. Also in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, uh, John writes, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him, that is Jesus, purifies himself just as he, that is Jesus, is pure. So if Jesus is your purpose, it would be that way because you've had faith in him. You've put your faith in him, your trust for salvation in him. And if that's the case... You have purified. You've been purified. It can also refer to the certainty of a promise, not the uncertainty. It can refer to the certainty of a promise. In Hebrews chapter six, verse 11, the author of Hebrews writes, "And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end." It's an assurance. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. The author would go on to write in, verse, uh, in chapter 10, verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So, what we see here is it can mean the, 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 the certainty of a promise, not the uncertainty. So, I'd say that the word hope here in our context of 1 Thessalonians means both. The church at Thessalonica was certain, they were confident of what their new purpose was. They were also counting on a promise that Jesus had made to return, to come back again. And they're holding on to that. From what we see here in verse 10, uh, in verse 9, he tells us, "You, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So they're holding on to two promises here. First of all, they're holding on to the promise that Jesus is coming back. That this isn't the end. He will be back. Secondly, they're holding on to the promise that he's going to save them from the coming wrath. That's worth holding on to. What are you holding on to? What are you holding on to? What's your hope in? You know, if you're sitting here today thinking, you know, I hope this Jesus stuff is true. That's not hope. That's not hope. That's not the biblical definition of hope. If you're uncertain, that's not the type of hope I want you to have. I want you to have that full assurance that the author of Hebrews was talking about. That's the type of hope that the Thessalonians had. That's the type of hope that you can take to the bank because you know that the cash is in the account, the funds are sufficient, it'll cash. And I would encourage you, as you're reading the Bible, to memorize a couple of those promises and hold on to them. When life gets hard, hold on to them. Take them to the bank. My favorite, personally, if, if you don't know where to start, if you have no idea where to start with God's promises, I'd say start with Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I will take that promise to the bank. The funds are there. So in conclusion, what do we do with all this? Yeah, this is, this is great. You know, the, the church at Thessalonica was praised by Paul like no other church, but what does that mean for us? What are we going to do with that tidbit of information? The answer is simple. And maybe at, at the same time, depending on where you are, maybe not so simple. We imitate the church at Thessalonica. Listen to what Paul says here in verses 6 and 8. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example or a model to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So they're a model for these churches in Macedonia and Achaia. The connection looks like this. Jesus modeled righteousness, godliness for us. Paul imitated Jesus, and so therefore Paul was imitating godliness, righteousness, Christ-likeness. And the Thessalonians imitated both Paul and Jesus. Guess who the next link in that chain is? Right here. You and me. He says they're an example to be followed. They are a model for these other churches. That's where we come in. Because if they were an example of a healthy church then, they still are. The standard hasn't changed. So if we're going to make a difference for the kingdom of God in our world today, in our culture today, in Lynwood, Washington, it's going to require some intentionality. It's going to happen because we intentionally seek to live in a way that reflects outwardly the change of nature, the change of heart that we've experienced inwardly. Our works will be driven by our faith. Our faith will cause us to work, to be the hands and feet of God. Not for the sake of justifying ourselves, that's not going to happen that way, but for the sake of serving the Lord. Secondly, remember, that living with an eternal perspective means seeing people the way God sees them. Living for his purposes rather than our own means that neighbor that we don't like. God loves them too. It means seeing them the way that God sees them because we love God, we will love people. Third and finally, let me just ask you guys this. Do you trust in God's promises enough to take him to the bank. The church in Thessalonica got it. And my prayer today is that we'll get it too. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we thank you that you have called us as your own. We pray, Lord, that you will teach us both individually and collectively to serve you to live for you as a result of our love for you. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to love you more. Help us to get it, Lord. Help us to be a church that gets it, a church that other churches would be told to model. Thank you for Linwood Evangelical Free Church, Lord. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you for the people who have come here today. May we be transformed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.